0: You maniac! You blew it up!
1: The Delta House has a long tradition of existence to its members and to the community at large.
0: Grant me one request. Grant me revenge. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode. I don't know if it's going to be exciting, but it's going to be another uh, episode of uh, the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg, uh, your host. This week's episode is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. We'll talk more about that uh, later on in the show, but right now, uh, so I'm coming to you from from hot and humid and fairly equatorial Orlando, Florida. And I'm part of this sort of leg of the book tour um, in conjunction with the National Review Institute, and it be it's been great. It'd be even better if it were February um, because I'm sweating like a fat man in all-you-can-eat pasta bar. But other than that, uh, it's been a great time. And uh, and so since I couldn't get a, I wanted to get Charlie Cook in person down here since he's now moved down to Florida. But since we couldn't arrange that, um, I had to scrape the bottom of the barrel, and I got uh, this guy Steve Hayes. Steve, welcome to the Remnant. Welcome back to the Remnant.
2: Well, that's a really great introduction. Thank you. You like so that? Much. It's it's yeah. really an honor to be here.
0: <laughs> I can sense I can sense you are overflowing with gratitude.
2: Look, I'm happy, I'm happy to be Charlie Cook's pinch hitter anytime. Uh, oh, I
0: it, didn't even go to all be, the other people we tried to get before we had to settle I'm on sure. you. He, he
2: would, I mean, just the <laughs> accent. I mean, not to mention the fact that he's. Considerably smarter than I am, sharper, wittier, handsomer, um, more handsome, I guess, and the accent—all of those things. But I'm happy to be a pinch hitter. We can can sw- you um, can you
0: pronounce uh, aluminum the way the Brits do? Aluminium. That's not bad. That's not bad. All right. Yeah. So we're, we're making we're cooking with gas already. Um, so I guess we should start with the uh, the the most pressing issue of the day, which of course is the fact that I mean I'm just trying to keep bring you down to earth. And which is why we're going to talk about the most important issue today, which is the Caps winning uh, the <laughs> Stanley Cup. When did you stop drinking?
2: <laughs> I, I was on the road. I, so I watched Thursday night's clinching game, Stanley Cup winning game uh, at, at home with my family and then had to jump mm-hmm. on a plane first thing the next morning. So it was mm-hmm. not a big I, – I did not have a big – a weekend celebrating like Alex Ovechkin, I was not diving in fountains and and shouting curse words after drinking beer on the on the stage. But I was very happy. I went to my 25th college reunion this weekend, so I was nice. I did have a few beers, part of, partially to celebrate the the Capitals' victory.
0: Were any other more exciting mistakes made at your there, reunion?
2: There were no mistakes made. There were oh. none in college. There were none at the reunion. uh-huh. uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. <laughs> I, I have uh, to everybody to listeners who went to college with Steve Hayes, please send your emails to uh, <laughs> remnantpod at gmail.com and uh, fact we can do this sort of crowdsourcing fact checking about the idea that Steve made no mistakes in college.
2: I'm not sure why I mentioned that I went back to my reunion. you know Brett Baer went to college with me. He was I know that at DePauw University. So you're
0: ahead of you though right
2: Ahead of me, right even And he kind of hazed was, you, right. He did, he did haze me. We were in the same fraternity, and Brett was one of the ones who delivered what was called a lineup where he yelled at the pledges.
0: Uh-huh. But he also,
2: Brett was the closer that that the Sigma Chi fraternity brought in, and, and he gave the the talk to me to convince me to become a Sigma Chi. He was very persuasive, as you might imagine.
0: Uh, kind of reminds me of that line from Four Weddings and a Funeral where the guy says, He buggered me senseless, but he taught me a thing or two.
2: <laughs> I think that's a that's a good way of putting it. The, the funny thing was Brett doing the lineup. So the lineups for people who aren't um, initiated, um, no pun intended, uh, are these things that, that were active members of fraternity yell at at pledges and tell them how worthless they are and how much harder they have to work and all of this stuff. And Brett, who's, you know, um, everybody respected and liked, he was really a fun guy in, in college. And he was not, he didn't sort of, um, have the cut of somebody who was going to get in your face and shout at you. So he had a hard time pulling it off because yeah. he, he was friends with all of us. He was good natured. He was friendly, and we kind of laughed at him as he was trying to, <laughs> trying to get in our faces.
0: I can totally see that. I mean, it, it's sort of like um, you know, trying to get Andy Ferguson to seem like a jerk.
2: You know? Exactly.
0: Exactly. You know, it's just really hard to do. All right. Well, congratulations on the Caps. I mean, for listeners who don't know, I mean, it's like it's very difficult to have a conversation with Steve because all he ever wanted to do is talk about the Caps. And it's it's a big thing for him. And I'm, I'm very happy for you. And and D.C. won't have another national championship for what, like 25, 30 years? Yeah, I'm, worried
2: like about, I'm worried about that. I like this team, though. There's a chance they repeat. I mean, I've been a Caps fan for 25 years since I moved here after college and uh, growing up in Milwaukee. We didn't have a professional team. So I, Why? I
0: how is that possible? I mean, That Milwaukee, I mean, Milwaukee, I would think would be one of the top sort of hockey teams or hockey
2: cities. I think so. Uh, I I would guess that that as the NHL scouted places to expand and chose places like Phoenix, Florida, Carolina, Atlanta. Not that I'm bitter. um, They thought that Milwaukee was too close to Chicago. That's my that's my guess. And didn't because it already had a professional basketball team at the same time. Didn't have sort of the numbers to support a team. I don't know. It would have been great. We had the Milwaukee Admirals, which was the minor league team, and I went to those games, but uh, not quite the same as having an NHL team.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about the Admirals. Almost everything I know about them is when I was doing off-site sports betting on the Admirals. But that's, that's <laughs> another story entirely we don't need to get into. Daniel
2: um, Lacours was the star. He's, <laughs> he's like this little 5 Five foot two guy. And he was super fast. That's what I remember. And Dale Yakichuk was their big defenseman. Huh. There you have it. Admiral's history.
0: Um, all right. So uh, in, uh, in other news, right, uh, sort of um, <laughs> when we get off the front page, there is the fact that we have now um, completely and wholly eliminated
2: the uh, nuclear threat from
0: nuclear threat from North Korea. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Isn't that good news?
2: It's amazing i'm surprised other presidents didn't do this earlier given how easy it was to eliminate the nuclear threat all you had to do was sign a non-binding document in which the north koreans agreed to eliminate their nuclear weapons and we are now all safe
0: and it's and at least going by the sung or whatever it's called the south korean news agency i saw today They'll denuclearize when we denuclearize. That it's going to be uh, sort of going to be one of these turn your key kind of synchronized denuclearization efforts, which is was really exciting because I didn't know that we were going to that America was going to denuclearize as well.
2: It's kind of cool. Yeah there are there are lots of different things that um the north Koreans have meant over the years uh, uh, when you use the term denuclearization the bush administration preferred the term dismantlement rather than denuclearization i think for that reason because it was you actually understood in a more specific way what dismantlement meant um, right. but denuclearization is here and um kim jong un has uh, agreed to do uh, what his predecessors also agreed to do and did not do we have a nuclear north korea right now and i think there's there's not much possibility that they will actually abandon their nuclear weapons in the program yeah i mean so we should now for
0: the benefit of listeners who think we're being too cute just completely turn off our our sarcastic frequency i don't get i mean i honestly i mean it's sort of a rhetorical thing because i understand that this is you know Donald Trump does these things uh, where he wants to sell the sizzle rather than the steak. And he comes back and he tweets things that aren't true all the time. And he t- so he tweets today that the nuclear threat is entirely over and all this kind of stuff. I, my, I don't understand why so many people – what's weird, I, I shouldn't say this because like, I watched a big chunk of Fox News this morning. Not a single talking head, not a single member of Congress, none of them where they had ed royce on they had um rubio no one was saying that this is over that the threat is gone there's no one in the republican party as far as i can tell who's saying the threat is over it's gone there's not a single expert i think who doesn't appear on sean hannity's show that thinks the threat is over and the threat is gone and yet if you say on twitter this is ridiculous the threat's not over or if you even quote what donald trump said in singapore about the threat not being over and how there's a lot of work to do, you're called a naysayer. Why do you got why, why can't you give him credit? And all this kind of stuff. It's a very weird sort of mob mentality kind of thing going on. Where and and everyone, all the various pundits, they're obsessed with giving Trump credit f- yeah. for something. And I don't I don't quite get what we're supposed to be giving him credit for.
2: Yeah. Well, e- even even if you don't make the very obvious, I think incontrovertible observation. That the nuclear threat is not, in fact, gone, that we have not eliminated North Korea's nuclear threat because Kim Jong-un signed a piece of paper after 30 years of signing similar papers that had not that did no good. Even if you don't want to make that argument, but you think it's just inappropriate for the president of the United States to go out of his way to do propaganda for Kim Jong-un, which is literally what the National Security Council did with this video. Yeah. Uh, That it produced, it's what Donald Trump did in his press conference when he used the uh, North Korean and Chinese arguments that U.S. military exercises are "quote provocative," unquote. Uh, You should not be doing. We should we should be able to agree that you should not be doing propaganda on behalf of the North Korean dictator. And the extent to which the president whitewashed his human rights record and said, "Well, you know, he had to get rough." We understand why he had to get rough. And then later said his people love him with fervor. Honestly, I, th- I think it's disgusting. I can't I, – I really don't understand why even the most ardent Trump supporters can't at least say that. we can't. Are we at the point where we can't agree that the American president should not be doing propaganda on behalf of the North Korean dictator? I mean if, if we can't agree on that um, – I, I, we're in, we're in trouble.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and it's, and it's, it is absolutely true that if this had been President Obama, the media would be fawning on. Although President Obama, and you know, I think both of our records on being critical of Obama is pretty solid. Obama would not do the kissing up to Kim Jong Un that Trump has done in the last twenty four or forty eight hours. But even if he had. Or even if he even if he'd done something close to this and met with, Un without preconditions, gave him this kind of summit, had the flags at the same level. It is absolutely true that a lot of people in the liberal media, a lot of people in the sort of Ben Rhodes echo chamber type, would be celebrating the courage to think sure. outside the box and all kinds. Of, but it is also true that so many of the people celebrating Donald Trump doing this on the right would be saying, "How dare we? You know, kiss up to a dictator? How dare we propagandize?" for you know this barbaric regime and so it's weird how both sides you know who are screaming you know why aren't you giving them credit or if this had been obama they're both right about the hypocrisy of the other side but they're not right about their own hypocrisy this would have been terrible if obama did it. it's terrible the the way the the way that trump did it
2: yes i I completely agree hypocrisy abounds i mean i think the most instructive um example in that is is cuba I mean, when you look at the reaction of most Republicans and conservatives to what President Obama had done on Cuba and the the extent of the public expressions of horror, and I was one of them. I didn't think it was a good thing to do, and I thought that the way that we regarded the Cubans was naive and the way that we treated them was disgraceful, putting them, in effect, on a pedestal given uh, their history. But if you were really, really upset about that, We think about what we've witnessed over the past three days with respect to North Korea and Kim Jong-un. I mean, this is a guy who is running something as close to a concentration camp as we've seen in recent years. Today, today, it's a policy of the state to starve its people. Family members who are thought to be disloyal to the regime are summarily executed. And we have an american side that has you know not only downplayed those things but in some ways rationalized them and i just i mean again if you if you can't get upset about that if you can't be clear-eyed enough to to see the problem in that and the hypocrisy of your position if you were outraged about cuba but you think this is a huge win i you know i'd just say check your own hypocrisy
0: yeah so and look, I agree with that entirely. I, mean, I, I think one of the more fascinating things is about North Korea, that, and to a certain extent China too, is that there's something about Westerners, and particularly Americans, that we just tend to describe other countries as, we just tend to assume that other countries are living in the same century with us, that they share the same sort of metaphysical and epistemological understanding of the world, but like, North Korea is, is a monarchy, they don't call it that, but it's a it's a dynasty. It's a divine right of kims, and like Nick Everstadt has written a lot about this, about how they basically have basically fifty different gradations of class that are yeah. very much like you know the peasant serf gradations all the way up, and this idea that 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 this is a country that is just like another. This was like one of the last countries where you could still make the point. That it was just an evil country, right? You know, who are you to judge? And if you say that about Iran and say, Oh, you're just bigoted or you don't understand, they have a thriving democracy, it's just they do things differently. North Korea is one of the last countries where you could just say, No, 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 no. It's just evil. It's just horrible. And and now, you know, it's like Donald Trump is saying, Oh no, the North Korean people love have great fervor and great, you know, for yeah, their for their leader. It's exactly. it's really appalling,
2: but. and it's external too. I mean, it, you know, certainly the, the fact that the human rights abuses were were sort of shrugged off uh, in the public discussions of this uh, over the past few days, I I think is um, is shameful on on the American side, but it's also external. I mean, remember, North Koreans have shipped weapons to the to the Middle East. They're known one of the the, the greatest proliferator, proliferators of nuclear technology, the Al Qa'bar. Uh, nuclear facility that was taken out in the Syrian desert in 2007 by the Israelis was known to have been a project, a joint project between at least the Syrians and the North Koreans. And the North Koreans, there was a United Nations report that came out earlier this year that accused the North Koreans of playing a, a not insignificant role in um, Syria's chemical weapons productions and use. Um, this is a really bad country, both internally and externally. And shortly before the, um, the U.S.-North Korean summit was to have taken place, uh, there was an announcement that Bashar al-Assad was going to meet with Kim Jong-un. And I think it was a pretty obvious attempt to you know g- stick a middle finger up at the United States. But the fact yeah. that, that it was announced on in North Korean state media that both sides seemed warm and eager to do this. I mean, the United States just took military action against the Syrian regime because it was using chemical weapons on its own people and shortly before we meet with them the north Koreans agree to sit down with Bashar al-Assad who's butchering his own people i mean it is it it, it was meant to make a statement i think it made a statement you know on the one hand you could argue that the united states uh, maybe was was smart not to take the bait and call on them to cancel it, and North Koreans would count that as a concession, and, and that puts us in a little bit of a box. But on the other hand, should the United States be in the business of meeting with rogue dictators who kill their own people and also proliferate the worst technology, uh, <laughs> weapons of mass destruction technology, to the worst regimes, other regimes in the world? Uh, at some point, this stuff matters, right? I mean, this this is all sort of fun to have a, a, a victory lap before the victory, but my my concern is that we're going to be paying for this down the road. This stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it doesn't go away when the when the celebration ends.
0: So, you do all that reporting type stuff. What the hell do you think is going through John Bolton's head these days? I mean, first of all, the national security video, the national security council video stuff, the propaganda stuff is is awful. But there's just no way on God's earth that John Bolton thinks the nuclear threat from North Korea is over. I mean, there's just, it's just, I mean, you and I are far more likely to be persuaded that (laughs) of that than, than John Bolton is. And, and like, has he just been completely sidelined in these conversations? I gather that he and Pompeo um, aren't playing well with each other. I think
2: I think it's certainly the case that Mike Pompeo has been driving the process internally. I I don't I would love to talk to John Bolton. I have not um, talked to him uh, in recent days and or weeks. And so I don't know. I don't have a very good read on uh, what he's thinking. You know, he he did make the argument, he made the argument in the pages, I believe, of the Wall Street Journal that we would be we may have to come to the point where a military strike on. North Korea is the worst bad option. Now, I think he was being mostly hypothetical, and he walked through all of the other options. But he made the case, and he made the case not long before he entered the White House. There was a clip. It's a, it's a clip that's being sent around by um, mostly left-wing critics of the president of John Bolton on Fox saying, yeah, I think it's good to engage in this diplomacy because it accelerates the timetable of a potential military strike on North Korea. And I'm paraphrasing, so that's not the exact sure. – um, but I think the 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 dark view, the sort of conspiratorial view, is that that's what this is about. Is really get the b- diplomacy going, make sure that it fails. I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, I think it,
0: well, so I, it's interesting. So I had a quick take in the corner this morning about this, um, about because you know there's that more interesting historical argument in defense of Neville Chamberlain than you, you usually get in the shorthand, which is that you know Britain Britain and France needed time to disarm. They prevented worse bloodshed in Czechoslovakia. I mean, not to, not to disarm, time to, to arm. The They prevented worse blood fl- bloodshed in Czechoslovakia. But also, you know, since Hitler wasn't going to change his ambitions, going the extra mile for diplomacy to show the futility of diplomacy has its purposes for garnering and galvanizing domestic support, right? And so that's one of the things I was willing to say. In defense of all of this is that Trump going the extra mile and doing the Singapore summit and all of this kind of stuff as a teaching moment to explain to people that the North Koreans cannot be trusted and to convince even the MAGA crowd these days that it cannot be trusted has some, some benefits to it, doesn't it?
2: I would say – well, a a couple couple of thoughts. One, it would be be easier to make that case later if Donald Trump wasn't out saying, I trust Kim Jong-un, I I trust Kim Jong-un. Now, I suppose he can say when Kim Jong-un does what I think many people expect that he will and violates this or or doesn't follow through with his his written commitment, unwavering commitment to denuclearize, that they can say, gosh, see, President Trump really went out of his way to say that he trusted him, gave him the benefit of the doubt again and again and again. Kim Kim Jong-un still – you know, violated that that trust. I suppose you could make the argument that then Donald Trump is in a better position to say, "See, I tried this and it didn't work." A- on the other hand, it's it's unclear to me that our allies are going to be uh, more sympathetic to Trump after having gone through this exercise because they don't really know what he's doing at this yeah. point, right? Yeah, I mean, the Japanese right. I basically shrugged their shoulders and said, well, gosh, we don't we don't know." I mean, they they. Um, you know, they wanted kidnapped victims returned. That didn't happen. They've, they've said publicly after this that they really aren't sure what was going to happen. The, the initial comment um, out of the South Korean foreign ministry, if I'm remembering the timing correctly, after President Trump's Press conference was we are studying what what he said to try to make sense of it or something like that. Now that could just be a you know a, a word of caution, avoiding coming to to premature judgment. But you know we've seen in the South Korean press um, today, as you mentioned, declarations that Kim Jong Un basically won the summit, and I'm not sure that this process makes our allies closer to us at the end of it, uh, even if that were the intent.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's fair, and I think. I mean, what worries me about Trump personalizing this is that he's personalizing this. And so if if does what everyone thinks he's going to do, it's going to be felt to Trump like a personal betrayal. Right. And he personalizes everything. And that's not a good place to be in nuclear brinksmanship.
2: No, it's terrible. Well, you look you I think you tweeted or you wrote somewhere that you think in the short term, this is. Probably makes makes war with North Korea less likely in in the long term. I think you said after six months it makes it more. Yeah. Likely, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think a-
0: after the midterms,
2: <laughs> right? Because because either they either they denuclearize, which uh, going out on a limb, I don't think that's likely, or they don't, and then Trump is. We don't know how Trump will react to that. I mean he himself said in his press conference that he won't admit that he was wrong. So either they don't denuclearize and the Trump administration is in this weird position where having constructed a verification regime, they don't take their own verification regime very seriously because the president doesn't want that news or – you have the president very pissed off because it will be obvious to everybody that he's been played. It seems to me those are two of the, the most likely outcomes, the third and I think least likely being uh, that the, the North Koreans actually denuclearize. But we have to – I mean just, just one point of, of context here that I think is really important. You know, The president and his administration defending this have made arguments like the one you made. Well, we're bringing along our allies. We're showing that we can't trust the North Koreans. We haven't made any concessions. But you have to think about where this discussion started. And I'm not talking about the you know, the, the Trumpian rhetoric, my button is bigger than his button. I'm talking about the, the administration's st- oft-stated position with respect to negotiations. They said repeatedly, we are not going to talk unless we have seen credible, verifiable, concrete steps toward denuclearization. I mean literally that's what Mike Pence said just a couple days before this summit was – Announced, um, Or at least the, the possibility of a meeting was announced. So we abandoned that position. I mean, that was our posi- that was the U.S. government position. We are not yeah. talking unless you've shown us that you're moving toward denuclearization. We left that. We, we just dropped it. And then we talked without that. Uh, insistence. And I think if you're Kim Jong-un, you look at that and say, well, gosh, they weren't that serious about denuclearization, were they? Because now they're willing to meet with me when they said before that they weren't willing to meet with me. So in four months, if you just look at the administration's rhetoric, we, we went from we will not even talk to them unless they show us that they're denuclearizing in a verifiable way to President Trump's tweet, President Trump's tweet Wednesday morning, basically saying North Korea is no longer a threat. Problem solved. I mean, yeah. that's an incredible. Think about that in four months. That's incredible.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's right. And, you know, and people, I mean, I, I now have more, like, up until very recently, I had very few criticisms on this stuff of Trump himself. My criticism was mostly grounded in the, or my skepticism, I should say, it wasn't because I didn't think Trump was a great negotiator. Although this idea that he's the greatest dealmaker in the world, I do not, that, uh, I, I, uh, it, to me it is always a tell that either someone is sucking up to him or someone has is, has drank their own Kool-Aid when they start talking like that because there's just there's no evidence from business there's no evidence from politics that he's the greatest deal maker in the world but my skepticism about this has always been about North Korea you know asking the North Koreans where they t- you know they teach grade school kids about the nuclear programming as being as sort of essential to their worldview and essential to their future dominance of the planet and all of this and, and the, the peninsula and the region and you know asking them to give up the nuclear the only reason why we had this summit in the first place is because kim has nuclear weapons and yeah. kim likes this attention and he's not going to give it up it's like to me it's like asking donald trump to give up his twitter account or giving like the harley the 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 Hell's Angels to say, OK, you have to give up motorcycles and switch to minivans. You know, just, you know it's yes. it's the definition of who they are and they're just not going to do it.
2: <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. And I think there, there's been a lack of appreciation of just how central this was to the North Korean regime going back three decades. Um, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Indisputable. The I mean. If, if you're looking at the way that the regime has talked about its nuclear weapons, I mean, you look back to the, to the statement that came out of the six-party talks in the fall of 2005, the language on denuclearization was almost identical to the language here. And, and I'm not sure people appreciate just how often the North Koreans have made almost this exact promise. And then violated it and violated it quickly, and in some cases violated it in in you know significant ways. I mean they are now a nuclear state, so um, that is what gives them their power look we we should be We should be somewhat open minded about this. There have been other things that have happened in the past decade or two that I would have long thought impossible that happened right i mean i didn't think that we would go into Iraq and find that Saddam Hussein had voluntarily given up uh, right. most if not all of his weapons of mass destruction. Um, And that happened. Uh, Surprised the hell out of me. Uh, I didn't expect Donald Trump would be elected president. I didn't think the Republican Party would rally around him. I didn't think he'd be at 80 plus percent support among Republicans right now. Um, If you would have asked me in 2015, I would have said I'm virtually certain of that fact. And that happened. So, look, is it possible that we can make an argument to Kim Jong-un that says, In effect, your regime survival depends on you doing what we are telling you you must do. I suppose that's possible. And if you believe and a lot of intelligence analysts who do that, the primary objective of the North Korean regime is Mm -hmm. self-preservation, then you can get to that. I mean, you can sort of reason your way to that conclusion. I'm not convinced that that really is the regime's primary objective. I think it's one of them. But it's really hard to see, given what we've seen from the North Koreans over the past three decades that we get there.
0: All right. So let's switch gears a little bit. I think I've I've said this on this podcast before. You know, a radio host asked me a couple of weeks ago if William F. Buckley would recognize today's GOP. And the only thing that came to mind was, well, you know. Charlton Heston recognized the Statue of Liberty at the end of Planet of the Apes. <laughs> um, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> recognition's not everything. <laughs> um, uh, the primaries yesterday, this – what I mean – and look, I, I'm only – I'm, on, I'm in sort of book tour mode. I'm in hellish on the road mode, so I'm not reading as deeply into some stuff as I have to. Wait, there you, have a, many- you have a book out? it's true it's true what What? yeah you gotta oh you know i and i owe you an apology i mean um the a fact checker from the weekly standard kid i i saw him at a book signing event and he informed me that i spelt your name in the acknowledgements with a v instead of a ph oh my gosh yeah so
2: we've only known each other for a few months (laughs) that's true still i'm going to um i'm going to
0: Burn Jack with cigarettes.
2: When That's I a heck of a if I can say that. He's very uh, good. Holmes. Yeah, library. although
0: he's probably you know he first probably went right back to look at you know what what I said about the boss, that kind of stuff. Because you know
2: he fact checks everything. I think he fact checks his own wife. I mean he's yeah. he's that good.
0: And and well, also you you run that place a bit like Kim Jong Un, and everyone yeah, everyone's required to cry when you enter the room and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But so i'm 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 almost eager for correction on this but uh i saw the top line stuff from mccormick and the standard about what i gather is a let's put it diplomatically a problematic peckerwood who just got the nomination for the senate in, in virginia can can you explain to me what i'm actually supposed to think about this until i can actually read up on it myself Cause it, it seems to me really depressing to me. I mean, really profoundly. Yeah, but combined with the South Carolina stuff, really
2: depressing. Yeah, it. It. I think it is depressing. John McCormick, um, who's a senior writer at the Weekly Standard, uh, went out the weekend before this last one to do a piece on Corey Stewart, who is, uh, shall we say, being generous, I would say, has flirted with the alt-right. He has said things like Paul Nalen, who was the uh, white nationalist bigot who challenged Paul Ryan, was his personal hero. But Stewart defends that by saying, well, I didn't know how racist he was when I made that comment, but he has had associations with some of the people who were involved in Charlottesville. Um, he's a strong defender of all things Confederacy, even though he's from Minnesota and it was a, a a very strong Trump supporter, uh, at the, get from, from the outset. Um, he, he is now the Republican nominee for Senate in, uh, Virginia. It was unlikely that that was going to be a competitive race anyway, in the general. In, right. in the general election because yeah. they're looking to unseat Tim Kaine who's reasonably well liked in, in Virginia, pretty popular in in Virginia. And the state, I think, has trended from purple to closer to blue in recent years. So it was unlikely that it was going to be a, a very competitive race even if the other uh, Nick Freitas was his name, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, uh, was a sort of Rand Paul Republican uh, military background. Um, also a a strong Trump supporter, but Corey Stewart won, and I think he was expected to win certainly. Um, but now it leaves the the Republican Party in Virginia without um, many places to go. I would say.
0: But it also, I mean, I mean the, the Mark Sanford thing we can get to it in a second. But like the the Corey Stewart thing, as far as I can tell, you know, it it, it demonstrates you know one of the problems that 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 you get when you have when you define a party increasingly by loyalty to a single personality is it is that that litmus test actually becomes more inclusive of people that shouldn't be in the party right i mean if it's just loyalty to a man then who cares if someone's a protectionist or a bernie sanders socialist or a steve bannon you know wear nine layers of clothing type or whatever <laughs> um uh uh, and so are there are there lots
2: of those. Is that a constituency?
0: But, you know, so this guy, you know, it's like when you have when 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 that's the standard, right, then all of a sudden it becomes essentially a popular front kind of thing. And it, like so the, the advantage of having a litmus test about ideas is that if you flirt with the all right, you can't be a conservative or you can't be a Republican or you can't get the nomination, But when the most overriding thing is your loyalty to a person, that means you're going to draw in people that, you know, at least in the Buckley tradition, we should be having bright lines to keep out. And I'm not saying that this guy is a neo-Nazi. I don't think, I I gather he's not. But what what we're doing is we're slowly eroding these barriers to those kinds of people, right? So Paul Nealon doesn't get nominated, but someone who likes Paul Nealon can get nominated. And... Um, And then you take this stuff with 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 Sanford, where the defining issue apparently is just whether or not you're loyal to Donald Trump. And so we're losing a guy who actually, you know, for all his faults, he had faults, actually believed in some things. Right. He was a limited government entitlement reform, serious policy guy. But because he didn't bend the knee enough to Trump, he's got to go. And meanwhile, a guy who flirts with this fever swamp, you know, nasty crap. He can be in because you know he, he he's got his maga hat, and that's that is not a great trend line for
2: us no no it's not and and look you're seeing this you're seeing this all over i mean it really it really is becoming the case that that that's the main issue, particularly in republican primaries and and this is not I would say unexpected first of all, the first point I would make is. You know, Corey Stewart, Stewart at the very least will say flirted with the alt right, um, and that's being I would say charitable. But in some ways, so did Donald Trump, right? I mean, so in that sense, Donald Trump provides a lot of top cover for some of these other candidates who have engaged in public conspiracy theorizing, or in you know, or defended people like the Charlotte protesters. Defended is probably too strong a word. Um, rationalized or put them into context, however we want to say it. So Trump has given those people top cover. And I think that expands that field that you're talking about as well, in addition to the fact that fealty to Trump, it becomes the most important issue. But I mean, there are some (coughs) excuse me, some pretty stark examples of this in the Indiana Senate primary was largely a contest of who was Trumpier, And you had these three candidates competing to be the. The Trumpiest. You had um, Martha Roby in Alabama, an incumbent uh, House Republican who had been pretty popular, but had raised questions about Donald Trump, particularly after the Access Hollywood tape, struggling in her reelection bid and her primary bid. Um, The the most interesting, arguably, and and the New York Times, I wanted to have somebody – Go up and write this. The New York Times uh, did it before we were able to. Is this race in in New York between Michael Grimm and Dan Donovan? Um, they're they've got a primary coming up on on June 26. Michael Grimm, of course, is um, the, the Republican, Staten Island Republican, who who basically got in trouble with the law, pleading guilty to tax fraud, um, and spent actually spent time in prison and his opponent, Dan Donovan's pretty moderate Republican is not going after Grimm primarily because he's a criminal because he's convicted, <laughs> spent time in, in prison. He's going after him because he's insufficiently Trumpy, even though Michael Grimm says that he's the Trumpiest of all Trumpy candidates. So, the contest is to a certain extent a battle of who's trumpier despite the fact that one is a convicted criminal and I think it tells you in a sense just how far that's gone and and the mark sanford i think the mark Sanford case is illustrative in in that sense i mean sanford has sanford voted for with, with donald trump seventy nine percent of the time um, he challenged Donald Trump on some spending issues in particular he's more libertarian on national security stuff than than I am than than I would be in the, in a congressman or congresswoman that i like but he it's not like the guy was off the reservation I mean, he was basically voting with the trump agenda more off, far more often than he, he wasn't and he would publicly criticize the president sometimes for things that i think most conservatives five years would have agreed with him on but he is punished in part because he's he wasn't trumpy enough
0: yeah i mean and it just seems to me that when we're recruiting the next generation of politicians you know, blind fealty to a glandularly in the moment 72-year-old is not quite the same sort of criteria that in a, in a properly incentivized party that you would have. I mean, there would be a slightly broader, you know, menu of positions than, you know, whether or not, you know, you are always wearing your MAGA hat. But, you know, another criteria for recruiting talent would come from Zip Recruiter. And I want to talk for two seconds about ZipRecruiter. So I know you guys like that segue, but it's true. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners, that's you people, can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com d-i-n-g-o. ZipRecruiter.com slash dinglo. Ziprecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So uh, I know you got to run. I got to run. I'm in uh, Orlando and I got to get it up to Saint Petersburg. But you know, the original idea for having you on here and for listeners who thought I was seriously talking about scraping the bottom of the barrel with, with by having Steve on here, well, I was serious. But that's not important right now. Uh, <laughs> no, but um, uh, is that we both wanted to talk just a little bit about 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 Charles Crowdhammer, And I gotta say, it's one of the worst things about being on this book tour is how many people come up to me and ask me about Charles. And, you know, this is sort of a rough time I've had. You know, it was the anniversary of my father passing away a couple days ago. My father in law passed away a couple weeks ago. And this stuff with Charles is every now and then you just kind of get emotional about it because he was such an and that's the other problem is talking about him in the past tense. Yeah. drives me crazy. You know, I don't want to talk about him in the past tense. I want there to be some miracle that comes along. I don't, I don't like this, but, but it is what it is. You know, and so many, it's amazing. You know, I've been going around talking to a couple hundred people this week, and everybody wants to know about Charles. Everybody feels invested in Charles, and it's a testament to just the huge place he had in the, in, in, in the media and in the world of the right, but I think far beyond the right as well.
2: Yeah, I mean absolutely. The 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 thing that I've been thinking about uh a lot and you and I um knew this um what a week and a half before. Yeah. It was pub- publicly known. So um we've had a, a lot of time to, to think about it. I mean the th- the thing that I think about is those conversations that you're talking about with people you meet around the country particularly at speeches where there are lots of conservatives or Fox viewers and they know Charles or think they know Charles and in in I mean in many respects what you see with Charles on the air is well, is, is who Charles is. I mean I think people do get a real good sense of the person. Um, and certainly if you've read his book or you watched Brett's very good special on Charles, you, you get a sense of the man, of of who he is. But I I think the, the thing that I'll miss most, I mean, I think we, we miss his voice. We have missed his voice for the past 10 months in a way that I think is incalculable. I mean, I think, you know, if Charles had been weighing in on some of the things that we've seen – You'd have different responses from Republicans in Congress who so respect him and look to him as sort of a a guidepost, uh, intellectual guidepost on a lot of these things. But, you know, I'm certain that the way that I'll that I'll miss him most is uh, is as a friend. You know, in those those days, almost 10 years ago, when I was doing um, special report, Charles was on five days a week. I was usually on three, sometimes four and um, before the show started, we'd both get our makeup done and then Charles used to have an office in the back and he would go sit in in the back and think about what he was going to say on the show. Sometimes he'd watch the beginning of the show. Sometimes he'd just take a nap. And I very reluctantly at first would go in and, and disturb him hoping to, you know, you have an opportunity to talk to Charles Krauthammer one-on-one, you take it. Yeah. And I wasn't sure that he liked it or would welcome my company. I mean, it was sort of his time. And a lot of times you do, you want to think about what you're going to say on the panel. And he he welcomed me in and we would talk, you know, sometimes for a half hour, 45 minutes, three, four times a week. And just to be able to draw on that for, for me personally, you know, that's just, I mean,
0: yeah, he's, Yeah. I know it's it's tough. It's really tough. He was he is just this amazing guy. I mean, the only thing I kind of disagree with you is that in public, or the TV, the TV Charles Crowdhammer had a slightly more sort of Doctor Strange levian kind of ominous yeah thing going on, and in private, like one of the things I always loved about him. I talked about this on a the Glop podcast recently, but one of the things that just always made me just, just warm the cockles of my heart was the way I – because I'm not a huge baseball fan, right? The way I knew the Nationals had a home game was because when Charles would come in to do Special Report, if he had a baseball hat on and was chewing gum and was just kind of giddy and kind of flirting with the makeup girls and telling jokes and wanting to hang out, you knew it was because he was so excited like a little kid to go to the baseball game after the show.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, and uh there was a sort of there's a, there was a there's a there's a brighter cheerier side to him than the persona. Like his jokes on TV, I think he got a little more jokey towards, you know, the last couple years where he would do the animal stuff and that kind of thing, yeah. but yeah. But um he's just this just one of the most remarkable, you know, human beings that I've
2: ever met and and I just don't think you, I, I agree with you entirely. The, 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 um, I got a little distracted. The, 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 the thing that doesn't come across on television is his warmth and his humor. Yeah. And that's what, you know, you, you, you have conversations. you've had probably what thousands of conversations with admirers of Charles Krauthammer over yeah. the years. And you, the, to me, they're developed a sort of patter, a sort of back and forth where they would say, How's Charles? You'd tell Charles how much I love him, all this stuff. And and I'd say, Of course I will and they would say, What's he really like? What's Charles really like? And the way I always answered the question was that you can see how brilliant Charles is. People who are watching the show understand how brilliant he is. He speaks in perfect paragraphs. He, he his there there's no fat on the points that he makes, even when he talked longer than the rest of us, which I always gave <laughs>
0: No, I gave him grief about it too. <laughs> the
2: the but what they couldn't quite see was what a good man yeah. Charles is, and you know, in in Washington today, I, would that would that it was different? But there aren't people like Charles Krauthammer. I mean, he's you know I, I admired everything the guy did. I would want my kids to use Charles Krauthammer as a role model. He was kind to. Everybody that he came in contact with, I was talking to one of the, the old school bookers, Julie Talarico, up at Fox, and she's now up in, in New York, but we were just reminiscing. And she said, you know, every time I saw him, she, he would take the time to stop and ask her about what she's doing, ask her about her career, find out what's going on in her life. And, and, and you, you knew that he meant it. He wasn't sort of going through the motions as so many famous people do and, what have you. And the other thing, I mean, Charles is sort of brilliant on another level. We all recognize that. And he knew it, but he didn't lord it over you. Right. No. I mean, if I were as brilliant as Charles Crowdhammer, I would be such a pain in the ass. I mean, I would, nobody would want to ever talk to me. Charles wasn't that way. It was his brilliance was just sort of there. But as you knew him as a person, it almost took, took a backseat to his, his warmth, which is, no,
0: that's true. I mean, <laughs> he wore it unbelievably lightly. Yeah, you know. I mean, look, I, I'm, we're both fans of George Will, but when you talk to George Will, you get this feeling that, you know, y- he may not suffer foolishness well. You know, and 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 Charles just
2: it, he suffered just wanted dis- to. Dis-
0: <laughs> yeah, he suffered your foolishness. He indulged you. He would ask you what you mean by that. He would follow up. You joke around. He didn't take he didn't take everything so incredibly seriously. And it's funny. So like when I started regularly doing the panel as this sort of surrogate goatee for you, the only thing that I would like that would truly make my mom proud of me on TV was when I would make Charles laugh Mm. and she watched it like a hawk and I would always try and it became a thing where I would try to make him laugh and get him to break his sort of. Doctor Strange loved dour look on TV <laughs> because then the producers were looking for it too, and they would cut away to him and catch him laughing, which was awesome.
2: And that's an accompli- that is a that is a, a a major accomplishment.
0: Yeah, no, I was so psyched about it. And he re- he would remember stupid throwaway lines. Like I remember saying about somebody, this is five years ago. I remember saying somebody was a couple fries short of a happy meal, and in terms of like being crazy kind of thing. And he would bring it back up to me all the time. And I did a corner post years ago when they claimed that they might have had found life on another planet. And I did this joke, um, which has been a sort of standard sort of joke of mine for sort of fantasy thing of mine for years about how, how the world would react if a spaceship came here from an advanced civilization and the, the ramp lowers and outcome a whole bunch of Hasidic Jews and it turns out that like there's this planet run by Jews and they're way more advanced from us. And there's like this holy crap moment among like the Palestinians and all these people. Like, what do we do now? And anyway, Charles loved to talk to me about that. And like <laughs> years later, he would bring it up. <laughs> and, um, and he's just, you know, he's, and, and we talked about dogs all the time. And he just, he was just, he is just this unbelievably well-rounded and generous person. And I know people, who have emailed him who he barely knew, who've asked him questions about, you know, people who had mental health problems in their family and what should I do and all that kind of stuff. And he would write back incredibly thoughtful, substantive suggestions and say, contact me anytime you want. He I think he missed being the psychiatrist sometimes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And uh he did the same thing. He did the same thing for me. I, w- I went through this period a few years back where I was having these, it was a constant headache, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it was, it was excruciating. And some days it just like beat me. And I was just out and neurologists thought it was migraines and then it wasn't migraines. And we went sort of round and round about it. And Charles every single day would say what's happening. What's the latest, who can I call? How can I help? And, yeah. and he meant it and he would come up with names. I mean, he was very serious about that and, and, you, you definitely got the sense that he would do anything at all for you. the The other, a funny, panel story uh, of, of that I have of, of Charles. We had a we disagreed throughout the 2002 or 2012 presidential election in the Republican primaries. I was I was much more of a sort of Tea Party friendly. Guy. I think Charles liked Mitt Romney um, more than I did at the beginning. And I was, um, you know, there are all sorts of problems with Newt Gingrich, but I was more sympathetic to the arguments that Newt Gingrich was making at the time. And I forget what the exact debate was, but Charles and I. Went back and forth. He had sort of made his anti-Gingrich case, sort of pro-Romney case, and went down the panel, and it, it ended up with me, and I made a sort of Gingrich defense and questions about Mitt Romney, and I made the mistake of leaving a little bit of time left <laughs> before we had to go a break. And I wish it would be a much better story if I could remember the exact line. But whatever it was, I left like five seconds. And Charles, you could see he had this gleam in his eye and he's smiling at me looking down the panel. And he delivers a, a one-sentence Total destruction of my entire <laughs> thing, whatever I had said. And then a couple of weeks later, we had basically a similar version of the same argument. And Charles had gone first and whoever was in the middle went second. And I went third. And I was looking at Charles and I'm mindful of the fact that the clock is running out. And there's a there's a floor director who's holding up how much time is left. And you can see on the clock you get a good good sense. And Brett has signals that he sends if you're running out of time. And Brett was sending the signal sort of like, hey, wrap it up. We've got to go. I would be damned if I was going to give Charles a second to say anything in response. So I started speaking very slowly. <laughs> and Charles is looking back at me. He knows exactly what I'm doing. And he starts, I mean, he is dying laughing. He is <laughs> tears coming out of his eyes laughing. And, uh, and, I, I wrapped up, and Charles didn't have a moment. And Brett went directly to commercial. And Charles, I don't think he would mind me telling this in, out of school. He first looked at me and he said, "You asshole." <laughs> <laughs> and then he finishes and he sort of nods, and in and in this kind of fake arrogance that he would summon every once in a while, said, "You've learned from the master."
1: <laughs> it was just such a moment. <laughs>
2: Uh. yeah
0: so anyway i just wanted to i thought it was important to kind of do this and you know the guy's going to be i mean people say we're not going to see the like again about a lot of people we're going to see their like again we're never going to see his like nope. again
2: no nope. you know absolutely right absolutely and, right. both on a professional and public intellectual level and certainly i'll i'll I'm, i'll never meet anybody like him he's incredible yeah yeah
0: all right, well, Steve, thank you for coming on. I know this was a pain. I know you had to um, you know, bust up all that. Uh, you, had to, you had to kick Charlie Sykes out of the studio to do this <laughs> and, uh, and wipe away all those empty cans of natural bohemian light. Um, so I appreciate that. Any, and, anytime you need another
2: fill-in for Charlie Cook, you just let me know. I'll be there. Uh, all right, I appreciate it, man.
0: And um, All right, so we're done with you, Steve?
2: Great. You're not really done with me, but I understand what you mean.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and I do appreciate it. Thank you for doing this. This You're is, welcome. Yeah. All right, man. See ya. I, I assume people will get that I was joking about scraping the bottom of the barrel, but we'll see what happens.
2: <laughs> it's okay if you weren't.
0: <laughs> okay. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. See you. All right. So uh, uh, Steve has left the uh, studio at the Weekly Standard, and uh, Jack is is coming on. Uh, Jack, are you there? I am here. First of all, what do you think of all that? Did I do we miss anything? Was there something that you thought we should have talked about that we didn't talk about?
1: No, you really covered the bases. I'm just really intrigued by the revelation that Brett Baer was a bad pledge master, and I was ju- I'm just curious as to how the the Sigma Chi at his um, his alma mater let that happen. That's a very important uh, role. It's hard to it's it's a an important thing not to screw up. You weren't in a
0: fraternity were you
1: no but I still still have fraternities? it does uh but i'm still sort of sociologically fascinated by them they have long traditions of existence to themselves do, and indeed. the community
0: at large they do indeed they do indeed and we'll see how many longtime goldberg file readers understand the the deep layers of that reference um yeah i mean i i, I don't i have a hard time picturing brett as a as a it's pulling off being intimidating like that I mean, I think he can be an intimidating reporter and that kind of thing, but he kind of has this sort of cheery, hypnotize you with his teeth, Tony Robbins, nice guy thing going on. And uh, I kind of have, I, I have a hard time him imagining him screaming, is that a pledge pin on your uniform or something like that? But I've known, I've, I've heard all of these stories from Steve about college life before. Um, no mistakes? No. Yeah, that's a lie. That's just a flat out lie. And I would very much appreciate if listeners who know things um, including members of his own family, and uh, we can do a sort of follow-up on this. But there's just no way that Steve made no mistakes. And uh, so what other action items do we have? Anything else that we didn't cover in this thing that we need to d- discuss? I want to say, while you while you think about that, I want to thank everybody who's turned out. These events in Florida have been packed, lots and lots of people. It's been a bit of a challenge trying to do 20-minute, you know, 25-minute book talks. Because as, as Jack can the test, I talk long and there's a lot to talk about. But the Q and A's have been great. The people at the book signings have been great. The the book sales have been great. Um, the only thing that's just awful was the you know the the absolutely horrible Florida humidity, um, which I just cannot stand. You know, I'm I'm descended from a desert people, but we like a dry heat. But uh, it's the the support from people. And, you know, and it's interesting. I should have talked to Steve about this. You know, you go on Twitter and you criticize Donald Trump for saying this stuff about North Korea. And um, or for the the way the whole thing has been handled, you criticize Trump or the administration about anything in the response you get on Twitter is 100 percent. How dare you? You never Trumpers. You are you're idiots. You can't give them any credit for anything, all that kind of stuff. And then you go out and you actually meet real conservatives in the real world, um, including people who are, you know, pretty comfortable having supported Donald Trump and continuing to support Donald Trump. And they're much more sort of, yeah, no, I get your point. It's a good point, but what are we going to do? And blah, 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 blah. And it, the, the level of actual nuance and seeing it both ways and, um, understanding the situation that we're in and the position that I have, it's, it's kind of really edifying because when you're sort of bunkered in Washington, just doing the Twitter thing and reading your emails, um, or reading the attacks on other websites, you would get the sense that, that it's, uh, sort of, uh, existential divide. And I don't think it's actually an existential divide out in a much of real, of the real world.
1: Well, you're Are the you one still? in the real world right now. So I'm in, I'm in Washington DC, which is most decidedly fake. So I can't, I, I don't, I have no sense of whether what you said is correct or not.
0: Yeah. Although when you go home to Ohio, right? I mean,
1: oh yeah. Ohio, be... Ohio is, uh, it's viscerally real.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, God
1: bless Ohio
0: well or at least someone bless it (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) Ohio. and and if you don't hear my prayers crom well to hell with you
0: all right so i was thinking uh next week when we're back in the studio uh i want to do sort of maybe, maybe we'll do a sort of in defense or maybe not in defense of the enlightenment podcast since um there's so much of that stuff going on but we'll save that for later
1: yeah, we, we that, would we would uh maybe invite Steve Pinker to that, but I'm not sure if his hair would fit
0: in here. That's the problem. Yeah, he's got really really important hair. Um, and having been reading his book for the last week, um, I gotta say I disagree with a lot of his stuff about the Enlightenment, but that's another issue for another day. Oh oh, people who've been sending me bookplates to sign, um, I've started it. It's at the office. I promise next week we'll be sending them back. Again, if people want me to sign a book plate, which is basically a sticker with my sort of printed name on it, I inscribe it to whoever you want. If you have a note, say, if you wanted to make it to Charlie, give me a note that says that with the right spelling and send it with a return envelope, um, you know, a self addressed stamped envelope. I am happy to send that to anybody who wants it. I got to say, so last week we were doing the podcast with Ilya Shapiro, and afterwards, Like immediately afterwards, I turn on my phone to see what I missed. The very first email I read was this really just horrific, nasty email from some rando telling me that you know my father-in-law died of shame because of my position on Trump, and that my mother is going to die of shame because of my position on Trump, and that my father was lucky that he's dead because he didn't see my position on Trump. All this just like unbelievably evil, nasty garbage, which doesn't really. You know affect me that much, except it kind of depresses me about humanity. and there are times when people say terrible things and it does hit you, but this wasn't one of them. I was just sort of shocked by the the just garbage humanness of it and um, and kind of bummed out about where the country was and where life was. and I go up to my desk and I start opening these bookplate emails, but I first see this big package, and arguably the greatest American who ever lived, I won't give his name because I don't know if he wants me to, but a listener to the remnant sent a a request for a book plate attached to an 18-year-old bottle of Balvenie scotch. And it made my day. And I want to say thank you and just be clear that people who send me scotch will get specific shout-outs on the remnant. Um, but it was really great, and it really sort of restored my faith in humanity. I just wanted to say something on the show about it.
1: Wow. You're um, going to get a just cascade of
0: scotch now to this office. It's going to be something. From your... From your lips to somebody else's ears Croms uh Croms whoever oh Crom doesn't help
1: out Well, no i think uh, I think you could argue he did, I think he respected the brazenness of conan's prayer and was going to ignore him, but that when Conan said to hell with you, he's like, "Oh, okay, I like this mortal he's got spunk yeah, that's possible, that's
0: possible. I mean we should get um Cliff Asnus, the man who uh, endowed my chair at AI and is a fanatic fanatic. Conan fan to weigh in on this issue. Maybe we'll have him on sometime. All right. Other than that, thanks again to people who bought the book. Thanks again to people who sent in nameplates. Thanks again. Please, if you can do reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, all those places, wherever fine podcasts are, are served, that would be great. If you could subscribe, that would be wonderful. If you could subscribe uh, to an NR plus, that would be great. Oh, and then there's NR plus. The NR plus. That's a, thank you, Jack. I will double your rations of Soylent Green this week. <laughs> It's people! Um, I, <laughs> I need to make a. Uh, did you ever see the Saturday Night Live skit where um, it's the sequel to, to Soylent Green? It's um, what's his name? The fantastic guy whose wife shot him, murdered uh, him?
1: Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman. Yeah, Phil Hartman so yeah. Phil, I always get so him so and Phil, Phil Lamar confused for some reason.
0: Uh, so Phil Hartman plays Charlton Heston. And so the, the preview is something like we'll put it in the show notes or something. The preview is it begins. In Soylent Green, Charlton Heston warned us. And then Phil Hartman runs on, like, without his shirt on, and says, Soylent Green is people! And then now in the sequel, and I'm probably really misremembering this, but now in the sequel, Charlton Heston is back. And Phil Hartman comes on the screen and yells, Soylent Green is still people! (laughs) (laughs) That was it. Anyway, I want to talk to you about NR Plus, which is not made from real human beings, nor is it a floor wax and a dessert topping. Instead, it is a sort of super digital subscription to NANR. It's basically how you join the club. When you become an NR Plus member, you, of course, get unlimited access to the National National Review digital magazine, which is awesome. That means you don't get the paywall when you read National Review magazine on your computer or mobile device. You get total access to the latest issue and all of the issues in our 10-year archive. But NR Plus is more than just that. It's more than just a digital subscription. It really is a membership. When you join NR Plus, you get access to our members-only Facebook group. You do not have to wear a members-only jacket. It's a members-only Facebook group. That's a place where you and other NR Plus members can share your thoughts with all us editors and writers over at National Review. It's a great perk for everyone involved. You get to speak your mind to all of us at National Review, and we get important feedback from our most dedicated readers. It's a great deal. We've also started these conference call things, which I've done. Where we're featuring NR writers, editors, and special guests. Only NR Plus members get the call-in info, and there are really great conversations that you don't want to miss. There's also commenting. Only NR Plus members can comment on the site which makes it a much more elevated commenting experience, to say the least. Before I go on with this prepared copy, let me say, as the founding editor of National Review Online, I've wanted some kind of gatekeeping for comments for coming up on 20 years now. You know, I think that comments can be great. They can be useful. But there is just so many opportunities for jackasses and trolls to swamp everything and not make it worthwhile, which is why I don't read comments anymore. Not because I know there aren't thoughtful people who comment, it's because I know there are just too many unthoughtful people who comment, and it's a huge pain in the ass. And if we could get back to the glory days of NR Online, where you could actually have thoughtful conversations with readers, I think that would be just absolutely fantastic. So we're really glad that we're doing this. So anyway, get this. When you join NR Plus and are logged into the site, you will see up to 90% fewer ads on the site, in particular... You will see zero ads within articles. So when you're reading what you came to the site to read, your distractions will be minimized. And I can I, – this isn't in the prepared copy, but I can tell you if you don't like distractions, if you don't subscribe to NR+, Plus, Charlie Cook, the, the editor of National Review Online, will come to your house and tap his ballpoint pen on his glass eye while you're trying to read, and it's really distracting. Anyway – There's a lot more to the NR Plus program, but those are just some of the takeaways. So why not join today? It really is a terrific deal, and we have some great first-year pricing in place. So you want to act now. Here's what you do. Go to nationalreview.com slash plus. That's not slash dingo, slash plus. That's nationalreview.com slash plus. And there you can read about everything this membership has to offer. And then just click Join Now to see all your options that's nr plus folks nationalreview.com slash plus thanks everybody for listening i'll see you next time on this podcast no you won't this is a
1: podcast i'm bringing that back because it turns out people actually like it so it was only like a couple
0: people who don't but we'll see we'll see maybe we'll do a poll at some point but i'm fine with it coming back for now